in today's episode of the Amon Wire podcast. Revolutionary, emancipatory thinkers from West Africa shaped the intellectual trajectory of the Atlantic world itself. If we could reclaim that history, and if we could speak with a single voice that this is our history, whether we're from Bangladesh or Malaysia or West Africa or Brooklyn, then maybe we would have enough unity of voice that we could be heard by the broader society um, that would start to understand that Islam is something that's even more American than apple pie. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Iman Wire podcast. I'm Muhammad Salim from Iman Wire. Uh, today we have a special guest with us calling in, uh, Dr. Rudolph Ware, who is an assistant professor at the University of Michigan. We're going to be talking about uh, the, his book, The Walking Quran, Islamic Education, Embodied Knowledge and History in West Africa, and uh, some of the, the very interesting uh, things that he um, is researched in his book. Uh, as well as uh, the importance it has for us as as, uh, as Muslims in America. So, you know, to begin, Dr. Ware, first, welcome to the show. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah. And um, just a, a quick a quick note. Uh, it does say assistant professor on the back of the book, which was true when the book was published. But alhamdulillah, I have tenure now. <laughs> alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. <laughs> now, now alhamdulillah. I'm associate professor, which is even better. <laughs> so now, um, okay, so, yeah. Alhamdulillah, <laughs> alhamdulillah. alhamdulillah. Yeah. So yes, but professor at University of Michigan. <laughs> Before we get into uh, uh, into some of the research that you've you've um, you've laid out in the book, I think uh, to sort of the sets the stage here, uh, and this is something I think that you uh, challenge in your book is uh, when we look at uh, Islam and we look at Africa, both in terms of uh, whether you're looking at it from an Islamic studies point of view, in terms of Western Orientalism, or from an African studies point of view. Islam and Africa have tended to be um, partitioned as something mutually exclusive, and they've only been wet together um, by the force of circumstances of history. So, uh, so Orientalism from from Europe or from the West um, would consider African Islam as sort of a peripheral part of the religion or the tradition. The authenticity really lies in the Middle East, and on the other side, you have African studies who would uh, may consider that. Uh, Islam is a foreign influence in in the continent of Africa, similar to almost what the Europeans um, uh, idea that it, that the two are just they just don't go together. So, what do you say to that? But let's start from that point and how you see that distinction as it's played out. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a great place to start. Um, the way that that I phrase it in the book um, is that because of the way that racial thinking worked. Um, in the late 19th century and throughout the 20th century um, in collapsing um, uh, racial identity and religious essentialism, Arab came to be conflated with Islam and black came to be conflated with um, uh, pagan or or traditional or animist. Um, And so when um, Islamic studies and really Orientalism as it began, was being developed and African studies were being developed, um, there's a kind of blind spot where the intersection between Africa and Islam is meant to occur because Orientalists aren't really interested in this, you know, peripheral place um, and Africanists are not really interested in this uh, foreigner's religion. And so um, black Muslims disappear um, in the blind spot between these two academic fields. And that's quite a trick 
when you consider that there's more than 320 or 330 million Muslims in sub-Saharan Africa today. That's a lot of people to make vanish into thin air. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate um, because that problem of the invisibility of African Muslims, and specifically sub-Saharan African Muslims, is not just a problem in the academic characterizations of Islam, but frankly it's a problem um, in the way that um, Muslims outside of West Africa think about Islam. Muslims uh, often ignore Sub-Saharan Africa in the tradition, uh, in the history of their religion. Um, and similarly, um, many non-Muslim Africans perceive Islam in that same way. Um, and they're equally mistaken. Um, you know, Islam arrives in Sub-Saharan Africa before Islamic time even begins. Um, the first two hijras to Abyssinia, to Ethiopia, to Africa, take place in 615 and 616 CE, um, respectively. And that's before the hijra from Mecca to Medina that begins the Muslim calendar. So Islam is present in sub-Saharan Africa right from the beginning, um, and in the Horn of Africa, um, in West Africa, um, indigenous African populations begin accepting Islam very early, as early as the, the, the 8th century in the case of East Africa, um, and certainly by the 9th century in the case of West Africa, if not before. Um, and I, you know, when I was at the outset of uh, writing the Walking Quran, you know, I asked myself a rhetorical question. You know, how long do you have to have something before it's yours? You know, is is 1,100 years not enough <laughs> for West Africans to to, to have um, Islam before it becomes part of their cultural patrimony? Um, and the way that I used to talk about this, I never say this in the Walking Quran specifically, but but I've said this in lectures and other things, um, especially for for people who see uh, Islam as exogenous to Africa. I say, look, uh, Islam is a traditional African religion. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So uh, I think one of the interesting things that um, that uh, I found in your book was that in your approach to this question of of uh, that Islam and, and Africa, how they're tied together, you actually explore one of the most ancient traditional ways of learning uh, in Islam, which is learning the Quran. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, that's and that's what the book uh, is really all about. Um, that's that's my passion. Um, it's the thing that really um, captivated my interest um, when I uh, first considered what I would do a dissertation on, and that was in, in, uh, in 1999. Um, and the reason is because I saw this institution of uh, basic Quran schooling with children learning the Quran on um, these wooden tablets um, everywhere. Um, I saw it in urban centers, I saw it in rural areas, and I saw how deeply significant it was um, in, uh, in Senegalese society, uh, and indeed in West African society more broadly. Um, and there wasn't anything, um, you know, sort of intelligent or thoughtful that had been uh, written about it. People, when they wrote about Quran schooling in West Africa, they tended to just talk about um, uh, the fact that uh, children who are in Quran schools um, sometimes practice uh, ritual mendicancy, that is, they go from door to door to beg for their, for their keep in order to learn humility and also in order to subsidize studies that are, in fact, free, um, and that this was treated as like a human rights question, but no one ever actually asked the question, where did these schools come from? Um, what is the logic um, that uh, is undergirding this particular approach to, to education? Um, and the more that I studied the question, the more that I realized that all of the practices that were being marked as strange or alien or exotic 
in West African uh, Quran schooling were things that could actually be found, um, you know, a thousand years previously, 1,200 years pre- previously, in the very earliest days of Islam. Um, and that really piqued my interest because I started to come to understand um, that what this, this, this vision of Africa and Islam as being mutually exclusive caused people to see every institution that was unique or every Islamic style that was unique to West Africa as an expression of some kind of African syncretism. And what I started to see instead was that West Africans were engaged in an educational project that actually represented what education used to look like in other parts of the Muslim world, but which had uh, since been abandoned. Um, And that is the argument that I make throughout the, the walking Quran, which is that if you want to see um, the, the, the modern-day um, genealogical descendant of the kind of education that was practiced during the time of the Sahaba, uh, may, may Allah be pleased with them, and, and also the, the, the Tabu and the followers after the Sahaba, then you need no, go no further than West Africa. Hmm. And once that said, then our attention to um, sub-Saharan African Islamic history is no longer a matter of mere uh, kind of uh, democratic representation um, that's based on the demographic weight of, of Islam in sub-Saharan Africa, but rather that, that the particular um, approach to knowledge um, and the particular approach to Islam that you find in West Africa actually has something to teach us about Islam itself. It's not just local color. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's very interesting because um, just from a geographical standpoint, people might be be startled to to think that the tradition actually that's practiced in Africa of the Quranic schools and uh, the practice of Islam there, in in many ways, has more authenticity than what you may find closer towards what we might call the cradle of Islam and uh, Islam in the Middle East. And and there's a, there's a lot of reasons uh, um, uh, in that, and, and some of those you point in your book. Uh, but let's sort of backtrack a little bit and and, and talk about um, how, how someone's going to ask, well, how did that how did that tradition that that is so tied to that original practice of of education at the time of the the, the companions of the Prophet How did that get to that area in West Africa? Uh, how did that originate, and how was that preserved? Yeah, I mean, and, and that's that's a, an important part of the story, um, you know, sort of, uh, and it's something that is in a lot of ways um, unique. Um, about West Africa. So West Africa, as I just mentioned, has a very ancient um, Islamic tradition, um, but unlike similarly ancient Islamic traditions, it was never incorporated into the Arab caliphate that was established across North Africa into um, uh, southwestern Europe, and then also on the other side into um, you know, to the, sort of to the door of South Asia. Um, so it wasn't politically incorporated in the conquest um, of uh, of early Islam, and for that reason, Islam in West Africa, you know, sort of grew um, uh, a bit differently than it than, than it developed in other places. Um, the it's merchants and scholars that carry Islam to sub-Saharan Africa, rather than political authorities and uh, military elites. Um, so that leads to you know to to a few dynamics, which is that the that the the Indigenous West, there are certain indigenous West African uh, groups and families 
that start to fill the same structural role that those traveling merchants and scholars had filled. In other words, West Africa develops its own merchants and scholarly families that are Muslim. And these are the first people to convert to Islam in the region. And then they become the means by which Islam spreads laterally through sub-Saharan Africa in, in most cases. Um, and because of that, they're not, uh, Islam isn't tied to the exercise of state power in um, the same kind of uh, often rigid way that, that Islamic uh, law and scholarship is connected to state power in North Africa. Um, just for, to give one example, um, Qadis in West Africa are often not on any state payroll. They're often people uh, that um, have cases submitted to them voluntarily by uh, individual groups of Muslims and even mixed groups of Muslims and non-Muslims who agree to have the rulings of um, a respected um, and upright scholar and judge, um, they agree to accept those terms. Um, so that leads to, to, to a quite a different approach to Islamic law um, than one which is constantly reliant upon state power in order to back its legitimacy. Um, and so this leads to all kinds of uh, you know, other secondary effects. And, one, and the main one, and this is what I sketch in, in large part in, in chapter uh, two of the, of the Walking Quran, is that um, in West Africa, the normative position of Islamic religious uh, scholars is to maintain pious distance between the clerical estate, the scholarly estate, between this, this, this in, indigenous class of West African scholars and political elites. They, and in the West, um, it takes us a much longer uh, time to evolve similar kinds of uh, separation and checks and balances, and we do it for the opposite reason. So in the West, we evolve um, a means of separating the church from the state in order to protect the state from the church. Um, mm -hmm. And in a manner of speaking, in West Africa, they separate um, the church from the state in order to protect the church from the state. <laughs> So uh, I guess if we were to summarize, uh, to paint with a, a very broad brush, uh, uh, that the spread of Islam in sub-Saharan Africa was primarily um, uh, initially a social phenomenon rather than a political one in the sense that the spread of Islam was through merchants and travelers and um, learned people um, who um, taught the people um, the religion and then the mantle was passed uh, to the people of those lands. Um, who took that scholarship and took the learning and continued that, uh, and that's how um, the religion continued to spread in those regions. Uh, I think you you, uh, you you may have mentioned in your book how that uh, from a from a political point of view that Islam does not become uh, the, the majority in these areas in terms of numbers until um, many many years later uh, after that spread had taken place over many years. Um, and by that time, uh, there was actually, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that there was there was uh, quite a distinction between the scholarly clerical class, who were the, the vanguards of Islamic tradition, and the political political class, or the kings, and how um, the, uh, the scholars of Islam, this clerical class, made uh, a point to st stay very uh, stay f as far as possible from the the, uh, the kings and the political uh, establishment. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, the, so the, there's a there's a couple of things that I that I would just uh, you know say to to to, to texture um, your 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 very you know nice um, and careful you know summary. The the first is that th there are times when um, uh, 
when Islam spreads through military means, um, even in this early period, they're 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 relatively infrequent, but they do happen, um, and they're they're actually not from external forces. They're they're when sub-Saharan um, African states um, uh, use political and military means to try to expand their territories, and therefore, as a consequence, um, Islam spreads. So that that mm-hmm. that does happen. Um, it, but it, it remains um, uh, episodic rather than normative. <laughs> In other words, it yeah. happens from time to time, but it's, but it's not the norm. Um, and, and the other thing that I wanted to, to just mention before we got on to the, to the question that you were asking about is that, uh, and I think because it has a lot of relevance for, for modern uh, Muslims today, is that the, the most um, you know, sort of uh, um, accomplished and ancient scholarly tradition in West Africa is the Jahanke tradition. It's not the largest tradition. Um, they're, 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 you know, larger, you know, kind of Muslim social movements in sub-Saharan Africa uh, today. But the, the Jahanke are a group of clerical lineages that trace their origins back to a town, Jaga, in the empire of Ghana, you know, around 900 CE. Um, and they've been teaching the Quran right down to the present and teaching the Islamic religious sciences right down to the present and continue to do so. Um, and But what's most interesting about the, the approach that they evolved is that they ended up with a set of principles that allowed them um, to cohabitate peacefully in non-Muslim states when they were minority populations and to slowly grow Islam. So they, they, they believed, you know, for example, it things that like... Um, uh, unbelief um, is due to ignorance and not wickedness. So therefore, they didn't anathemize non-Muslims. They mm-hmm. sought instead to educate them. Um, they believed that jihad was only acceptable um, in self-defense to preserve the very existence of the Muslim community, and that if options for hijra were available, then it was preferable to move from places where political violence had spread to places where the religion could be practiced in peace. They believed that one, that Muslims could not only um, accept, but indeed support non-Muslim rule, um, as long as their liberty of religion was protected within it. Um, and so, and and they also believed that that because they would often be surrounded. Um, by largely non-Muslim populations um, due to this kind of modus vivendi, this way of living that they had worked out. Um, They put scholarship at the core of their community values in order to keep their religion um, from becoming washed away in the religious traditions that surrounded them. And because they focused on schooling and because literacy was such a valuable good, um, people from the surrounding um, communities uh, communities, people that hadn't yet accepted Islam, actually came to be to be interested in Islamic education, and they also very frequently and, and almost universally offered uh, Quran schooling to non-Muslims. Mm. They taught the Quran and literacy to non-Muslims as a way of getting non-Muslims to become attracted to Islam, and this indeed happened, uh, and it was one of the main mechanisms by which Islam spread through the region. And that's very interesting. Certainly, a lot of parallels, I think, for uh, um, Muslims today, especially living in in, in non-Muslim lands. That's right. One of the fascinating things I think that you talk about uh, in the book and in, in sort of the sweep of history of West African Islam is, um, as you just pointed out, that 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 um, that pacifism. 
of the spread of Islam in that area through these uh, learned uh, scholars, through these schools. Um, so there was a point where it was just this peaceful spread of Islam, and then uh, then but that then gives but, way eventually. Right, yeah. right, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm going to get into because then something happened, which is the, of course, um, the horrors of the um, of of slavery and the Atlantic slave trade. Um, so I'd like to move there because I think it's very interesting because one of the fi- things I really find fascinating is the layers of the different the scholarly opinions that develop uh, in response to this this issue of slavery. Because as you, as we were just saying, how you know they they were focusing on on, uh, on knowledge and focusing on a peaceful uh, transmission of the tradition, but then when they were forced with this with this really great injustice, they had to um, they had to make a decision. They had to see their situation differently and had to act in a different way. So if, you, if we could, let's let's turn there and perhaps you can you can uh, discuss Abdul Qadir Khan and, and that and that whole situation because yeah, I think I'm, that's really I'm, I'm happy to. Um, yeah, so the the I mean you you you've uh, you've set the stage um, you know ju- just right. Um, these are you know clerical traditions which for the most part don't have any experience with politics or with military authority. Indeed, in some places like in Wolof country in Senegal, um, if if you were from a royal family and you went and joined a clerical community, then you had to add abdicate any claims on your royal throne like the the divide between the 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 religious authorities and the political authorities was that um, was that strictly maintained and that changes when kings become people who are though they call themselves muslims they are trading um their believing muslim peasants in their own homelands in exchange for guns and ammunition (laughs) rum European trade brandy, tobacco, and fine garments. And that's what the Atlantic slave trade brings to Islamic West Africa. It brings an era of utterly unethical political rule. Um, And so if the reason why pious distance from power was maintained in the first place was so that scholars could provide an autonomous ethical critique of political institutions, um, but kings reach a point where they're no longer listening to, to that to that ethical critique, then that critique has to no longer just be words. It now has to take the form of action. Um, and a series of um, anti-monarchical, in other words, uh, Republican or Democratic, depending on how you want to phrase it. And I'm not talking about American political parties. I'm talking about it's proposing a form of government that's based on representation and that's based on the abolition of kingship. That starts to develop. Um, so clerical groups overthrow kings and try to replace them with a new kind of rule. And this happens, you know, beginning um, in the, there's some evidence for for the 16th century. It certainly happens um, a number of times over the course of the 17th century, but it reaches its pinnacle um, in the 18th century when the Atlantic slave trade is at its height. And probably something like one half of the total volume of the Atlantic slave trade, which is spread out over four centuries, um, actually uh, is uh, uh, takes place, the trade takes place during the 18th century. So half of the total slave trade takes place in one of its centuries. So we shouldn't be surprised that the 18th century then um, becomes uh, this uh, this um, theater for repeated contestation 
of this increasingly unjust uh, Atlantic economy and Atlantic political economy. Um, what I'm trying to say in plain old words is, is that a lot of scholars say, listen, we don't have anything to talk about anymore. We have to fight you now. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um, that this behavior has gone so far um, that, that, that we're not left with, with any choice. And it actually often happens, and this is tied back to the, to the, to the argument of the book as a whole. Um, the title of the book is The Walking Quran, and the basic argument is that what traditional Quran schooling sought to produce is not just somebody who possessed the book between their ears, in other words, they knew it or could recite it or could understand it, but rather that it was engraved on their very beings, and uh, that they were the Quran walking upon the earth the same way that the Prophet ﷺ was described in the Hadith as the Quran walking upon the earth. But one of the consequences that, that comes with that is that when you see um, these religious scholars who are beloved in communities and who are the, the agency through which Islam was spread to West African communities, when you see those beloved exemplars of the Book of God, those beloved um, uh, markers of community piety captured, put in chains, beaten, and sold as slaves, that's going to make you mad. <laughs> that's going to provoke a response. Um, and indeed, uh, time and time again, rebellions um, and even revolutions begin at the moment where these, these, human, um, these human copies of the Qur'an um, are, are abused and enslaved. And that's exactly what takes place at the end of the 18th century in the Senegal River Valley. And I think the most extraordinary you know, story in the walking Quran, in the book, takes place in chapter 3. For most of you, your listeners, if they don't get a chance to read any other part of the book, please read that. Um, because I, I show um, a great deal of evidence that under um, a person called Imam Abdul Qadir Khan, um, it's very likely that Futa Toro in the Senegal River Valley becomes the first um, government anywhere in the world to not only abolish um, the slave trade, but to abolish the institution of slavery itself. Hmm. I mean, just going back to the very uh, beginning when we were talking about Orientalism or African studies, or even just what, uh, say, um, those of African heritage, whether um, uh, Africans in Africa or African-Americans, whether they're Muslims, whether you're Arab, South Asian, whatever. One of the things that we've always been told is, you know, our our history has been dictated to us in a lot of ways. And one of the things that's always sort of put out there is that we as a people, whether we're talking about Africans, we're talking African Muslims, we're talking Muslims, whatever you want to say. You know, we didn't we didn't do anything about slavery. We don't know this concept of liberty. We don't we don't know this concept of of going against a monarchy. So this is really, I feel, revolutionary for our own thought today in how we perceive our perceive our Ourselves, that these were African Muslims who were only working in a setting of Islam, a setting of Africa, and from that own that register, that setting, they came up with these ideals of number one, of abolishing slavery. And you mentioned the book; they didn't just do it. There were several um, times where they kept on abolishing yeah. it, uh, abolishing slavery. And number two. Um, going against this uh, uh, monarchy political system. And that's not something that it, that was introduced by uh, an outside influence. It wasn't, it didn't okay. come from Europe, for example, what I'm saying, because I think yeah. when we think of abolitionism, you know, when I think of abolitionism, I think of, you know, uh, guys in, um, when growing up in, in U.S. history class, I think of, you know, John Brown, or I think of uh, some of the, the right. um, Thomas Clarkson in, in, in the U.K. and so forth. So... Yeah, and you and you just said the name. I mean, and that the like. Uh, so Thomas Clarkson, and this is the fascinating part. We all 
um, you know, receive that same story that you received. Because and I, I said this at a talk that you can probably find online. I gave it at the Schomburg Public Library in New York, is that, you know, we've been sold a bill of goods. We were told everything that's emancipatory and enlightening and liberatory in the human tradition came out of the West. Um, and And stories about um, the creation of a government other than kingship and specifically the abolition of slavery play an absolutely critical role in the West's uh, self-image. Okay, So we're told that the American Revolution and the French Revolution are really the instruments through which the world comes to understand liberty. Um, and when you really press people, they might tell you that the Haitian Revolution played some role in that, um, but it's really re- reduced largely to the to the American and the, and the French Revolution. But in point of fact, Reverend Thomas Clarkson, who who was the in many ways the founder of the modern um, British uh, abolition movement, he was the founder of the London Society for the Abolition of Slavery. He was also one of the founding members of La Société des Amis de Noir, which is, was the the first French abolition society. Um, he uh, in, in his first published work on the abolition of the slave trade, he mentioned Abdul Qadir Khan by name repeatedly. He he devoted something like 20% of his total text in that first book to describing this anti-slavery rebel, revolution in the Senegal River Valley. And he concluded, and this is stunning, um, in the 1780s, he concluded that this African Muslim king um, is more to be um, praised than any of the sovereigns of Europe in that he has made a, um, a far nobler contribution than they to the causes of humanity, liberty, justice, and religion. That's coming from a, a, a Christian priest <laughs> in the 1780s at the height of the slave trade. He speaks about an African Muslim in that way. Um, so, and so we come to understand that, that his vision of abolition, which is in many ways the founding vision for, 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 for Western abolitionist movements, is in large part sparked and fueled and nourished by his contemplation of this abolition that has already taken place in Africa. And that is, that's turning history on its head to, 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 to come to understand that and look at it. And, and in fact, I'm, I'm working on a book, um, you know, chapter three uh, gives the state of the research on that movement as it was, you know, when I was finishing the book in 20, you know, 2013, 2014. But I'm working on a new book that's just specifically on that revolution because it really needs its own treatment. And, and I'm trying to write it as less as an academic book and something that's more publicly accessible. Um, and I'm calling it the first Atlantic Re- revolution, um, Islam, um, abolition and republic before 1776. <laughs> Well, that's also, I think, challenges the, uh, you know, obviously, we're not going to sugarcoat history here. There was slavery in the Muslim world, as, as we know. Sure. And, uh, but I, I think uh, you could, I think one of the arguments to be made is that um, in terms of how um, abolitionism was not something that was uh, necessarily introduced from Europe, but also Europe and how they view sl- uh, the slave trade, and we use that as a euphemism because it was just it was just a, a horrific. Um, it was but, social but, violence, not trade. Right, yeah. right exactly. <laughs> um, but they, it's also presented in history that the uh, the slavery that happened in the Muslim world um, it was absolutely equivalent and had the same norms, had the same uh, racialization uh, and structure as the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, this is not to sugarcoat that there was. A lot of uh, um, anti-blackness and a lot of um, 
in the Muslim world as well as issues in slavery. But there's also a tendency to sort of try to equate the two because it 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 helps from from a from a Western European point of view. Uh, it, it helps. Listen, to make you're, them a you're, you're putting it very delicately, but the, the fact of the matter is, that it makes white folks feel better about themselves. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, so, so I've actually written about this um, in the Cambridge World History of Slavery. Um, volume three, I have a, a, a chapter that's called uh, Slavery in Islamic Africa, 1400 to 1800. And it actually talks both about the function that um, particular kinds of representations of the so-called Islamic slave trade have um, in, uh, in, um, in helping to allay guilt and, um, and to distribute blame for the problem of enslavement in, in human history. And one of the most important findings, I think, of that piece was to show the extent to which um, modern forms of slavery in the Muslim world are best understood as outgrowths of the Atlantic plantation complex itself, mm-hmm. including the modern forms of uh, racial slavery that you end up finding in places like the Gulf that you find in um, in uh, in parts of East Africa, the places the the slavery that you find um, in India in the 17th and 18th century, where many um, Africans are, are brought, is that when you actually start to to dig into the history of how slavery developed in those particular places, you realize that that uh, enslavement of Africans is exploding in those places. Um, at the same time that it's exploding in the West, that, that and that in many cases there's a direct connection. So, for example, in the 19th century, there's a huge Arab-operated slave trade from the East African coast that sends people all around the the, the Gulf and actually puts lots of people to work on clove plantations on what's now the, on, on the island of Zanzibar. Well, how do clove plantations develop on the island of Zanzibar? Um, the 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 technology for how to grow cloves on a slave stock plantation is carried by an Arabic speaker who has observed Dutch clove plantations in the Spice Islands mm-hmm. <laughs> that are using slave labor in exactly that way. And they're using slave labor in that way because the Dutch had previously used uh, slave labor for sugar plantations in the West Indies. So then they make, they use them for clove plantations in the East Indies. And then Arabs, um, you know, in this instance are, you know, saying, listen, this is the way that money is made in the modern world. We have to copy this uh, approach. And so therefore they install the same kind of race-based um, plantation slavery on the East African coast that that had existed in in uh, in, in Mississippi or Barbados, um, and that it's actually um, a disingenuous uh, discursive effort. It's a war of words um, to try to separate out the 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 Muslim slave trade from the Atlantic slave trade, because in many respects. Um, the the two are interconnected, and that the so-called Islamic slave trade is, in a lot of respects, um, an outgrowth of the Atlantic trade itself. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, you know, lest we be accused of saying that we're trying to make Muslims feel good about themselves, well, I'll ask this question. So we have this this, this tremendous movement in, in, in West Africa of, of where slavery is abolished, uh, Abdul Qadir Khan, and, uh, and that whole movement. Um, but that was... Uh, I guess that was short-lived. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. so people would, I think people would look at that and, and yes, it's, it's, it's amazing and it's inspirational and it, it really, I think, uh, cuts into the, the, the core principles. It's also principle. isolated. <laughs> right. The core yeah. principles of, of, of what we feel of what Islam stands for. But people would, uh, could say or could argue that, well, is this the, 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 uh, the, uh, um, 
the exception to the norm, which is um, supportive of this institution of slavery. Uh, specifically, I'm talking about West Africa and that situation, because these are Africans sure. in, uh, involved enslaving uh, other Africans and then also involved with European slave trade. Yeah. So what would, how would your response to be um, to that ar- argument? Um, yeah, so I've, I've actually, I've actually written a response to that <laughs> um, in, uh, in, the Cambridge World History of Slavery, not for Volume 3, but for Volume 4. And Volume 4 is on the 19th century specifically. Um, and between the two pieces, I'll, I'll summarize my argument as follows. So in, in, in Volume 3, I show how um, there have actually always been dissenting voices within the Muslim world. Um, that there were always religious scholars who took issue with um, the way that slavery law had developed. Um, and so there was what, what, when people say that slavery enjoys X status in Islamic law, um, they're making monolithic something that was, um, that was very, um, uh, fractured. Um, and certainly there was no single unified accepted approach. Some people, for example, believed that, um, no one had the authority to enslave another human being except somebody who legitimately and in, hated inherited the caliphate directly from the Prophet and his companions, so that after the fall of the, the, the caliphate as they saw it, which fell with Baghdad, that no one actually had the right to take captives in, uh, in an encounter and to sell them as slaves. Some people from the very beginning of Islam, and this is, and many people say that, 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 uh, that, that Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anh was in this group, um, did not believe in the taking of, um, of enemy dependents. Um, after battles, but only enemy combatants. In other words, women and children could not be um, enslaved. And indeed, there there are West African scholars that cite uh, the example of of Sayyidina Omar radiallahu anh, that he used to set free any slaves that he, any captives of war that he saw praying from amongst the Persians, from amongst other other groups. And he was told, you know, Oh, uh, don't you know that they're just uh, deceiving you to have their freedom? And he said, I'd rather be deceived uh, by the one who deceives me in favor of God than keep in bondage the one who makes the slap. So the point is, is that yes, many and, and, and almost certainly most uh, Muslim scholars, especially those in the so-called caliphate who are working for an expansionist slaving state, have uh, affirmed property rights and affirmed a, a kind of aggressive military action as productive of, of, of slaves. That is patent, and we know that there's a history of that in the Muslim world. But I think that we've underemphasized the extent to which there have been dissenting traditions of dealing with the, with enslavement from the very beginning, you know, including you know uh, things like that that the Prophet um, in spite of the fact that slavery was was legal under Arab you know customary law and that the Quran didn't directly abolish it, that he freed everyone that he had ever owned during his lifetime before he died, and that if the Sunnah of Rasulullah meant so much to people in those early days, they would have done likewise, and slavery itself would have vanished within a generation. Um, but instead, people got attracted to the world, and we know, you know, 
because of the history of the the, the fitness in, in in our religion after the Prophet ﷺ passed away, um, that there was a bitter struggle for control over the world and worldly things in that period, um, and slavery was one of the the the, the things that got caught up um, in that in that political struggle. But there have always been dissenting voices, and Abdul Qadir Khan's movement. While I mentioned a moment ago, I said it was isolated. I'd like to amend that. While it was exceptional, while it was unique. Um, it was not isolated. There were always scholars that that voiced dissenting opinions at different points in time, um, both through uh, through uh, words um, and through their actions. And I, I like to summarize, you know, sort of um, this this dissenting opinion and where it comes from in Islamic thought. In the words of uh, one of my favorite uh, West African scholars, uh, Sheikh Ahmed Obama, the founder of the, the Murid Sufi order, the Muridiyah, um, when someone uh, once came to offer him a gift of a, of a slave, um, he said to the man, he said, you own him? And the man said, yes. And his response, and I'll just say the while and then translate it, he said, Soko mome yama mom, dahmag mom bottom, which means, if you own him, then you own me, because he and I have the same master. <laughs> That's interesting because I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in, in terms of scholarship and how it is or it is not allied to power. Uh, right. So when you're talking about the expansionist Muslim dynasties, uh, uh, many of those uh, scholars were uh, effective mouthpieces for that agenda. Whereas if you differentiate that from what happened in 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 West Africa, where that the the scholarly class was effectively very removed from power, and and you could then argue that they were they were even more grounded, uh, uh, if you want to even say even more purely just in the tradition of Islam itself, they came yeah. to this conclusion that no, slavery was was an abomination uh, yeah. in in that form. I think it's very interesting in how. It, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but it's but it's a, it's it's, it's uh, you've put your finger on it, but that's actually also um, where one of these tragic ironies emerges. Um, which is that uh, is that when they do reach this moment that they have to capture state power, um, and I also detail this in the book, and that's and I want people to you know to be clear that this is no apologetic you know for for uh, for, uh, for for Muslims um, you know with respect to the question of slavery because one of the things that repeatedly happens and this happens in Futatoro also after the assassination of Abdul Qadir Khan is that once those clerical authorities are established in power even when they came to power in, uh, on a kind of emancipatory message they often become. Um, you know, sort of uh, reactionary with respect to the question of slavery itself. So, and and that creates another problem, which is that if the the position of the clerical class was to provide an autonomous critique of political mm-hmm. authorities, who provides the autonomous ethical critique of political authorities when the political authorities are themselves the scholars? Right, right. So, so that the injustice in some ways becomes more deeply entrenched when religious scholars take over the reins of the state. And I've heard it described this way: is that you know, is that uh, previously what you had was you had, um, you know, uh, uh, you had good religion and bad politics. Um, and but when scholars take over, then you have bad religion and bad politics. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. So, so that, that that scholarly those scholars basically become sullied by their. Involvement in in politics and that uh, so basically essentially what happened is that a lot of them essentially became 
the rulers that they were fighting for, fighting against earlier, because they, exactly in, in being in, in being in rule themselves, they understand the situation of where they are and the the, the ubiquitous nature of uh, slaving in, in that society, um, both by the external pressures of of the, the European powers as well as their you know competing kingdoms and, and fiefdoms. And the opportunity, frankly, for short term enrichment. And, of course, and, of course, yeah. <laughs> and that's of course that's something that um, that's that's going to be uh, an impulse for anybody. I think that's a good segue actually to because um, then. At that at that point in history, um, the European powers just completely just uh, come in and they just like they take over. And we have the 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 the, the, uh, the era of colonialism, and as you point out, then both the the traditional clerical class that became uh, in the ruling class and the rulers themselves, they're both effectively put out of power by uh, right. yeah. colonialism. <laughs> they're and, put out of business uh, once and for but, all. But and throughout, and and I want to bring it back to the beginning. Throughout all of this, though, we have that walking Quran tradition of this this. this this Quran schooling. So then what grows out of that? Uh, you mentioned uh, Amudu Bamba and uh, a group of many movements where it was focusing, it, it turns inward and it focuses on uh, on uh, on the soul and trying to build something from that. So if you could just, you know, maybe briefly talk about that a little bit. And one of the other things I thought you could also mention perhaps is the very interesting thing was that how, um, how the colonial powers actually uh, intentionally insulated uh, West Africa from the rest of the Muslim world, and how that how that played a role in preserving the authenticity of the Quran school and the walking Quran. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if 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 in telling the first part of the story, I lose the the second question, then bring it back. Um, you know, when when uh, when I get it, because it, it's uh, your your second question is absolutely critical. Um, you know, so I'll go to the first part. So you're absolutely right. Is that you know the 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 Quran school is the constant through all of this uh, change, um, you know, through all of these, you know, first from these imperial states in the old days, then through the rise of slave trading kingdoms, and then even with the onslaught, onslaught of um, European imperialism, which it's worth mentioning, um, and it should never be forgotten, is extraordinarily violent. I mean, you know, when, for example, I always, and I teach this in my History of Islam in Africa class, and also actually in my uh, pre-colonial African history class when I talk about the coming of colonialism. So in a place like Omdurman in, uh, in 1898, when the British, with help from Egyptian auxiliaries, colonized the Sudan once and for all, um, they inflict 20,000 casualties um, in a single day. Um, in, in one battle at Umdurman in the, in, the, in the Sudan. And more than half of those casualties are inflicted between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. that morning. Um, and against those 20,000 casualties that are suffered on the African side, the English suffer 271 casualties, and only a handful of those are actual deaths. The rest are just woundings. So the, this, this is... Um, uh, Incred incredibly destructive violence that is unleashed on the African continent through imperialism, and the world would be, um, we I would be remiss to not mention that. Um, and you know, uh, in in the old days, uh, you know, uh, before uh, you know, we worried about things like the Trump president presidency. I would often say in class, uh, when you study African history and the establishment of colonial rule in Africa. You can never have any illusions about who the original terrorists are, because there are pictures in, and I sometimes use a slideshow in class of European officers, British, French, and otherwise, wearing pith helmets with the heads of Africans on spikes, and that is what established colonial rule. So this this horrific act of violence 
disabuses Africans, chiefs and uh, and clerics alike of the idea that they're going to have any political or military authority in this new order. And forward-thinking uh, intellectuals, people like Ahmed Bamba, people like Elhaj Abdullah Nyas, people like Sheikh Hamala of Nyoro in Mali and others, um, they they understand the basic message of the Quran, which is that when God wants to raise um, the status of an individual or a people, he first delivers them into the hands of their enemies. And so they didn't lament the loss of a political kingdom. Instead, they saw a new opportunity to raise their spiritual station and to help um, the, the spiritual station and the enlightenment of the people around them. And so what they did was that they doubled down, they focused back on education. And because the very best thing that the Europeans did in Africa was to to finally and often you know sort of uh, half heartedly they did it they did at least make good on the promise of making slavery illegal and once that happened then there were all kinds of people who had experienced enslavement in african society and who because of their slave status had often been held at arm's length from islamic education so people like ahmed Bamba, people like elaj abdullah nyas they they did not discriminate against people with respect to their background they gave everybody access to Quran schooling they increased access to Quran schooling for girls and for women, for people that came from slave backgrounds, for people that came from the so-called casted backgrounds in West Africa, that is from the families of blacksmiths and leather workers and griots or musicians, um, that, they, that they made, they democratized access to Islamic education and made this cornerstone of West African society um, that is the Quran school they made it the cornerstone of new Sufi movements. Um, and it is in this period that, um, that Sufism becomes a, a, an institution for the basic socialization of uh, broad swaths of the population. And this is really extraordinary because, so, so for example, in a place like Senegal today, um, like Pew Research recently did polling and found that Senegal is literally the Sufiest place on earth, that 92% of, of Senegalese self-identify um, in polling with a tariqa, and the next highest country anywhere in the world is around 50%. And the top 10 countries on that list are all in West Africa, <laughs> okay? Um, and that was not the case before, um, you know, the colonial rule. So ironically, colonial rule, um, you know, creates a set of circumstances where these scholarly communities um, can give a new expression to this age-old tradition um, and to take something that used to be uh, something that was only for like elite men, basically, and that's what you know how Tassoa had functioned in the past. That it was often restricted to just scholarly elites, and they they make spiritual training rooted in Quran schooling, but then also going well beyond Quran schooling, um, the basis of popular social movements. And that's something that doesn't happen in that way anywhere else in Muslim history. Um, so it's it's really it's really quite an extraordinary story. And just to return to the to the second part, I didn't in fact forget. I remembered um, that that what allows that um, to to flourish is ironically colonial racism itself, because um, the the French and the British um, to a lesser extent, but or, or rather in a different way, the British do the same thing, but in a different way. Um, both groups try to insulate their colonial empires in West Africa from influence from uh, the, the Middle East. So at precisely the time that, that the Wahhabis are taking back 
um, the the holy cities in the you know 1920s and 1930s. Um, those and those ideas are are spreading in different parts of the Muslim world, and you know for a couple of generations before that, um, a bunch of ideas about uh, Islamic uh, education that are now collectively thought of as the origins of Salafism. While those ideas were also spreading, um, ironically, uh, colonial empires in West Africa shielded West Africans from influence from those things. So while schooling is being reorganized along this new kind of uh, ideological trajectory in other parts of the Muslim world, um, in West Africa, Quran schooling is continuing to evolve according to a very ancient logic. Um, and that's, you know, as I said, you know, uh, surprisingly, one of the main reasons why Quran schooling remains so deeply rooted in West Africa um, is because it was unwittingly protected by the colonial state itself. So I think I I want to take that and and as we draw to the close here I I want to bring that to uh, the situation of Muslims in America um, because this point about how um, the tradition the Islamic tradition of learning in in West Africa uh, was um, you could argue was was an uh, a more of an unadulterated form than you may find in certain parts of the Muslim world because of that very reason that the colonial powers uh, directly sought to influence uh, and um, fashion Islamic education. Yeah, reshape. Because, you said fashion. I was thinking reshape. That's exactly <laughs> the word, yeah. Because, uh, <laughs> because one of the, I think one of the, the issues for Muslims in America, um, uh, as uh, you know, you have, you, you, to, to paint again broad brushes here, but you know, you have uh, indigenous Muslims, primarily African Americans, you have uh, immigrant, quote unquote, immigrant Muslims from South Asia, from, from the Middle East, from other places. And the tradition, uh, one of the, one of the, the issues has been uh, uh, since the, the waves of immigration, say since in the 1960s, has been that uh, Muslims from immigrant communities have considered themselves to be the more authentic in their in their tradition, um, and the, the 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 proof of that is that they're coming from this Muslim land, whether it's from Egypt or Syria or from Pakistan or wherever. That that is a very authentic expression of Islam or a cultural manifestation of of Islam, and so as a result, there has been this marginalization of African American Muslims because uh, that uh, you know immigrant Muslims donned this sort of shroud of authenticity that yeah. uh, and, and 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 that's also reflected in the way we perceive our scholarship in that we don't give the mantle of authority uh, we don't give the same mantle of authority in respect to West African West African Muslim tradition as we do to the tradition say in the Middle East um, and I think that is sort of is a parallel to how we see each, um, each other today in, in, in America and how we consider um, if I'm from a certain culture group my expression of Islam is more authentic than someone who is indigenous to America and uh, compared to their expression of Islam could you speak to that a little bit and, and maybe sort of bring us to where how do you feel um, the walking Quran? How do you feel this tradition of uh, of that of scholarship and of libertarian ideals, if you want to even use that term? How does that play, or how can that play a role in towards uh, the Muslim community moving forward in, in America? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a beautiful question, um, you know, with uh, with lots of moving parts. So I'll I'll do my best to 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 to, to treat them. The first thing that I'll say um, is that this. Uh, this racialized uh, argument about authenticity that's been taking place, you know, and I, look, I, I came to Islam when I was 15 years old in 1989, the early part of 1989, um, 
maybe even January that year, I'm not exactly sure of the date, at a time when, you know, sort of immigrant Muslims were becoming, you know, increasingly visible. And, you know, I had grown up, um, you know, as an African-American in an in a extremely, um, you know, racialized society. Um, and I never uh, felt more looked down upon than I did um, by those immigrant Muslims. In, in, in many cases, uh, and it was really painful. Insofar as that, as the, having read the autobiography of Malcolm X, um, when he talked about the unity of the human family, when he, uh, you know, in Islam, when he took his his pilgrimage, um, I found something quite different. You know, frankly, when I when I got into to, to Islam, and that looking down the nose of, at the at the African American Muslim um, was prevalent then, and it's a problem now. Um, and you know, the 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 remedy the remedy to 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 ignorance is knowledge so if the walking quran makes a contribution it actually is that it shows us the history you know most um i think i, I mean i would dare say that most immigrant muslims don't know very much about the intellectual history of islam in their own countries they don't question um, the the educational institute. So, for example, somebody that comes from Egypt will tell you that you know that Azhar it has this thousand year old tradition of Islamic scholarship, but they probably don't know that in the 1870s um, it was really converted into a state run organization. It was no longer something that operated autonomously um, under the initiative of scholars. And so there were dramatic changes in how that school functioned. Standardized entrance examinations were used. People stopped teaching um, and getting uh, ijazas in the traditional format, and instead diplomas came to, to replace them. There was a dramatic change in what it meant to acquire Islamic education in all of these countries of the so-called heartlands of the, 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 the Muslim world. And those changes didn't take place in that same way in Africa. So when you find scholars that are trained in West Africa today, and I'll mention one, um, there's a, an amazing Jahanke scholar uh, based in Vancouver, uh, Canada, Imam Fode Drame. He's a person who underwent this traditional education and then came to Canada when he was 19. And so has been teaching the traditional West African way in North America for, for more than a generation now. You encounter someone who learned it the old way, not the way that it's been taught for 150, the last 150 years. And we look right past people like him because we're looking for somebody that came from Syria or somebody that came right. from Saudi or somebody that came from, from Egypt. Um, and people don't even know that there are jewels like that hidden amongst us even here uh, in America. And I want to say one more thing about that kind of authenticity piece is that never forget that it was the descendants of those same West Africans that were struggling against illegal enslavement uh, in West Africa and that ended up in the holds of slave ships and that nonetheless, because they had memorized and come to embody the Quran, that they were able to reproduce partial copies of the Quran from memory. Mm -hmm. They were able to teach the Quran in this, in this country and in Mexico and in Brazil and all throughout the New World beginning in the 1500s and running right down to the end of slavery itself. They're the ones that established Islam in this place. And as long as immigrant Muslims refuse, stubbornly refuse to learn this history, then Islam will always be vulnerable to be dismissed as an external alien religion. And that's exactly what we see with the storm clouds that are gathering right now. But if we could overcome our own 
racial problems. If Muslims could recognize that in, that we have this history of slavery in our countries of origin, you know, we have histories of race-based slavery in Egypt and in Saudi and other places, and therefore immigrant Muslims often arrive here with problems about race thinking, and then they come to America where those problems are only going to be multiplied. If we could um, have an honest conversation about how race is seen in our own community, and if we could remedy ignorance with history so that people could understand that, that African Americans, that African people, that the people that I've been talking about through this interview are the ones who are responsible for bringing Islam here then Islam could no longer be so simply and easily dismissed as something foreign. Because in point of fact, Islam has been present in what would eventually become the United States of America before it became the United States of America. And that revolutionary, um, emancipatory thinkers from West Africa shaped the intellectual trajectory of the Atlantic world itself. If we could reclaim that history... And if we could speak with a single voice that this is our history, whether we're from Bangladesh or Malaysia or West Africa or Brooklyn, (laughs) then maybe we would have enough unity of voice um, that we could be heard, if not from the corridors of power, because perhaps those people are deaf, dumb, and blind, but at least we could be heard by the broader society. Um, that would start to understand that Islam is something that's even more American than apple pie. Can't think of a better way to to close this out. Um, Dr. Ware, I really want to thank you for coming on. Again, for our listeners, uh, uh, his book uh, is called The Walking Quran, Islamic Education, Embodied Knowledge, and History in West Africa. Um, please go check out and, and purchase the book. Uh, it, it just it, it really is a revolutionary book in, in how uh, we see ourselves and how we see uh, the, the arc of history, not just in West Africa, but uh, um, worldwide. Um, to all our listeners out there, I want to thank all of you for listening again to the Imanwire podcast. Please uh, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Visit imanwire.com for the latest articles and podcast episodes. Um, if you're on iTunes, leave a review. Uh, and uh, we hope to see you again next time. Assalamu alaikum. As-salamu alaykum.